Judges chapter 7. As we continue through the scriptures at blistering speed. (laughs) Father, we ask that you'll bless the study of your word tonight. God, we know it's your word, and so we are just thankful to be able to open it up. We are so grateful to you that you gave us this amazing book that is more than a book, but is your, it's your statement, your call to us. We understand, Father, and we see how there are, there are things you do through the study of your word to our lives, to our hearts, the way that you change us and work in us. And we ask for that, Lord. We pray this is not just another Bible study, but tonight, Father, tonight, in the words that we study and the things we see and understand, you'll keep our minds sharp and crystal clear that we may be doers of this word and live it out and walk it before you. And and Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you are the teacher tonight. It's not me. It's not any ideas that, that we might have on our own, but, but we come before you knowing that you will remind us of everything Jesus said, that you will teach us what we need to know, that you'll be with us, and Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that tonight, to guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've told a few of you before, you may have heard me mention this, that when I was a kid, I would trash talk my dad, try and talk him into a wrestling match, as a lot of times sons will do with, do with their fathers, and, and uh, I'd go after him and I'd tell him I could take him down, and I'd say, you know, Dad, I can wipe you out, and you know, I'd be like four or five years old, eight and nine, as I grew up, I'd, I'd always say that. Well, there's a certain point, my dad used to always say something to me, really bugged me, he'd say, you and whose army? This was his favorite phrase. Oh yeah, you and whose army? And I'd be like... But in Sunday school one year, I heard about Gideon. And so from there on out, I had a nice smart-alecky answer. Little Sunday school Christian kid, my answer was Gideon's army, Dad. So you and whose army? Gideon's. And he stopped saying, you and whose army? I had heard the story of how Gideon, with 300 men, had routed the Midianite army, which according to Judges chapter 8, verse 10, was 135,000 strong. 300 against 135,000. And I thought that must have been some army. Those must have been some guys, well-chosen, sharpshooters. Picked out by God, the strongest, the best, the brightest, the most intelligent, the fastest moving, the toughest of all Israel. That 300 must have been the cream of the crop of Israel to take on Midian and take them out in the way that they did. What I didn't know then, but I understand a little bit better now, was that the power of Gideon's army had absolutely nothing to do with the strength of the men. As a matter of fact, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that's the substance of the entire story of Gideon's army right there. In a nutshell, if someone asks, what is Gideon's army, the story of him taking on the, Gideon, the, the Midianites? Chapter 7 of Judges, what is the theme of that chapter? What's the idea? In a nutshell, the answer is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the way you win battles. That's the way you go to war. 
by my spirit. So let's check this story out. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, you may recall that his father named him Jerubel because he contended with Baal. That's what Jerubel means. Contender with Baal. One who challenges or fights against Baal. So Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The valley, that's the Jezreel Valley. Also known as the Valley of Megiddo, where we get the phrase Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. It's there in Jerusalem, northern, or Israel, northern Israel. And it's one of the locations, by the way, that we stopped and will stop in the future on our tours to Israel. Which I keep bringing up, I know I do. I said a few minutes ago, a few of you weren't here to hear this, but I said there are two kinds of people who go to the bridge. There are those who have been to Israel, and there are those who are going to Israel. Okay? So go ahead and start making your plans. October of 2008, that's the next trip. You need to be there. It is such a powerful thing to sit there on the grassy area. There's a park there. To open up the Word and read this story as you watch the spring of Herod flow by. Right where Gideon and his men had settled down, there at in Herod, the spring of Herod, which by the way, in Herod means the spring of trembling, which is an apt name for it because you've got, at this point, Gideon has all his men amassed, 32,000 men going up against 135,000, it's four to one odds. Which means for every one Israelite, he would have to kill four Midianites just for them to break even at the end of the battle with their 32,000 men. And so each of these Israelites, they're all together and there's a lot of trembling going on at Inherit, the spring of trembling. These guys are verily, verily freaking out as they realize what they're facing, what they're coming up against. Verse 2 going on, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Now this is not brilliant military strategy. If you're afraid, why don't you just go ahead and go home? The the commander's job is not to ask if they're afraid and let them go. It's to pump them up. It's to say, hey, hang in there. I know we're only 32,000 against 135,000, but the Lord is with us. And yet God's strategy is completely different than the strategy of man. So he says, if you're afraid, head home. That's something, by the way, for us to consider as, as believers today. If you're afraid, that's okay, but head home. A student of ours in youth ministry that Jeff and I uh, worked with back in Anaheim. Um, his name was Kevin Leibick, and he was on the football team, and he always wore this T-shirt, Go Hard or Go Home. I love that T-shirt. And that is the call of the Christian life. Go hard or go home. It's not that God doesn't want to use you, but if you're afraid, if you're trembling, if you're faithless, then the Lord would probably prefer you just go on home and spend some time praying. And get ready, because the people God wants to use are not those who are fearful. As John tells us, perfect love casts out fear, and we have been perfectly loved in Jesus Christ, have we not? So if you have been perfectly loved by Jesus, let the fear go. There is nothing in this world to be afraid of if you are in Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear your mortgage. You don't have to fear the bills. 
You don't have to fear threats from men. You don't have to fear where the next meal is going to come from. Nothing. There is nothing that we must fear in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's got it covered. But there at the spring of trembling, there were 22,000 who were trembling, so they ended up with 10,000 less. Now that's still 14 to 1 odds. So we've gone from 4 to 1 odds, tough battle, to 14 to 1. Every one Israelite will have to take out now 14 Midianites, again to break even. And as far as God's concerned, that's still too many. Verse 4. So the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. So you got the lappers and you got the kneelers. And in verse 6 it says, Now the number of those who lapped, the dog-faced men, putting their hand to their mouth, lapping it up was 300. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands so let all the other people go each man to his home I just love this story we are now up to a 91% reduction of Gideon's original army 91% of the people are gone we're now left with the lappers the odds are now 450 Midianites to one Israelite which is how things work very well in God's economy God would look now at the 300 men. He'd look over there to the north in the Jezreel Valley at the, at the uh, you know, 135,000 Midianites and go, it's about right. That's good. We have just moved into the realm of the impossible, which is where God resides. It's where he does his great work, that place of the impossible. By the way, 450 to 1, does that sound familiar to anybody? Because there's another place in Scripture where we see the exact same odds. Let me give you a hint. The Midianites were Baal worshippers. And it was on Mount Carmel that Elijah would go up against 450 prophets of Baal. One prophet of God, 450 prophets of Baal. It's a great story. I'm not going to tell it to you because we should be to it uh, in, in a few weeks here. But the Midianites, these Baal worshippers, 450 to 1, it's the same odds that Elijah had when he took on the prophets of Baal. In fact, 1 Kings 18.22, Elijah said, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. What's the point? The point is the glory. The point is the glory. The point is always the glory. The glory of God. The place of the impossible is God's domain. This is where he resides. When it's absolutely ridiculous, when we look at it and we say, there's no way this can possibly work, that's where God is smiling big because that's where he shines. Not in the place of the doable. I mentioned Jeff and I working at Not Avenue Christian Church. Man, that was a doable ministry. We had a huge budget for working with teenagers. We had 45 adult leaders working with us with these kids. We had small groups. We had student discipleship leaders. We had a mechanism. We had a strategy. We knew what we were doing. It was a doable ministry. And people have asked me, why did you leave that ministry? Because I got to the point where I wasn't sure if it was God or me. 
And I didn't want to ask that question. I didn't want to wonder. I want to see what God's doing. I want to be in the realm of the impossible because that's where His glory is made manifest. That's where we see His greatness. And by the way, that's where faith gets fun. When there is no way that it can possibly work, but God does it. I want you to keep your finger there in Judges Judges chapter 7 and flip over to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Judges 7, keep your finger, Isaiah 42 and verse 8. The Lord is speaking, and listen carefully to this. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And by the way, Lord there, when you see it in half caps like this, I've shared this before, but just so you know, that's Yahweh. That's that tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, written in the Hebrew. We don't even know the exact pronunciation of it because it's only written in the consonants. But that's what God said when Moses said, Who do I tell them is sending me? Back in Exodus 3. Who's sending me to the people? How, How do I name you so they know who you are? And he says, I am that I am. You go back and tell Israel, I am is sending you. I am. That's the Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. And that's what's going on here. He says, the Lord, I am the Lord, the Yahweh, the I am. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another. Let me read that again. I will not give my glory to another. Nor my praise to graven images. Over in Isaiah 48, and keep Isaiah 42 open for a moment. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. Isaiah 48:11. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God doesn't share His glory. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For this reason God highly exalted Him, Him, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wait a minute. I thought He said, I will not share my glory with another. I don't give my glory away. But here we hear Paul saying that every knee is going to bow and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Highly exalted. The name above all names. So how is that possible if God doesn't share His glory with another, but Jesus Christ is magnified and glorified? It's possible because Jesus Christ is God. And so we see again the expression of the deity of Jesus in this. He doesn't share His glory with another, but Jesus shares His glory because Jesus is in fact God. Jesus said in John 8:54, "If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me." And by the way, I believe that the glory of the Lord is the entire focus of God's monumental purpose in human history. It is the big picture, the divine big picture. Why are we here? What is life about? What is my purpose? A question that's been asked a lot in the last several years. What is my reason for being here? And the answer, gang, I am absolutely convinced, is to glorify God. To bring glory to God. Now, I want to share something. I don't often, well, no, I do often do this. I want to give you a couple of major theological systems. This is what we were just talking about earlier. A couple of systems to think through and to consider 
And it doesn't matter to me, one way or the other, whether you think you are of one system or the other system. But it's important to consider this just for a moment tonight. It's a side note, a little sidebar. I'm not going to charge you for this. You get this one for free. Two major theological systems. Systems of thought in the study and understanding of God. The first one is covenant theology. You may or may not have heard of these, but covenant theology. A covenant theologian is one who believes the entire point of what God is doing is salvation. The redemption of man. From, from the beginning to the end, the study of the scriptures to the covenant theologian is about looking for and seeing redemption. Salvation. The entire philosophy, the pre-fall and the post-fall of man is all about the redemption of mankind. So the covenant theologian looks at every verse of scripture and asks, how does this relate to salvation? It's not a bad thing, but personally I believe it falls short of the greater truth, which is dispensational theology. You don't have to remember that, but you've got covenant theology. Then you have dispensational theology, which the point of dispensational theology is not salvation. It's glorification. That is the glorification of God. The entire perspective of the dispensationalist is God's glory. That that's what it's about. From the creation of earth in the beginning, the creation of angels... The, the, the establishment of God's glory in heaven, the establishment of earth, the second coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, is all about and all points to and all focuses on, centers on the glory of God. Now consider this, because we did t- talk about this about a week or so ago. Covenant theology is man-centered. It's about salvation. It means that I read the scriptures, if I'm a covenant theologian, I read the scriptures with a view to how it speaks to my salvation. So it's focused ultimately on me. Dispensational theology, I look at the scriptures and wonder and ask, how does this focus on the glory of God? How does this exalt the name of Jesus Christ? And it is God-centered as opposed to man-centered. These two um, theologies are interesting to me. Because the truth is, there's only one man on whom the glory of God has ever been or ever will be given, and that's Jesus Christ. The only person who's walked in the flesh who receives and has the glory of God. Again, as Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Now back in Isaiah chapter 42, look back at verse 1 and listen carefully because... The Lord begins to talk here about Jesus. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not establish he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's good news because there are times when I am a dimly burning wick. Kind of a dim wick. You know, there are times I'm just not quite there. There are times, gang, when I am a bruised reed. And the Lord's not going to break me off and He's not going to put me out. He's gentle and He's merciful. And He will bring faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, He will not be disheartened or crushed until He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, or literally the islands, good news for us here on Whidbey, the islands will wait expectantly for His law, for His Torah in the Hebrew. 
Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to graven images. By the way, covenant theology, salvation, redemption-centered, dispensational theology, glory of God, God-centered, covenant theology is also known by another name that you may be more familiar with, replacement theology. And replacement theology is that belief that the church is spiritual Israel and has replaced physical Israel. They blew it, they're cast out, they don't have any purpose anymore in God's plan. And that's not what scripture teaches. We've talked a lot about that in the past. So, by the way, if you want to study and consider these things out more carefully, there's a new, somewhat new book that's come out. Charles Reary wrote the book Dispensationalism. You may or may not be interested in what, even the definition of dispensationalism, and you might not want to go around with a t-shirt saying, I have become now a dispensationalist. People aren't going to get that. But the book is supposed to be excellent. I have it on order, and I'll let you know if you don't get it, how it was. But back to Gideon. A little side note for you. The glory of God. The focus is the glory. And this story is about the glory. Verse 7 of chapter 7 in the book of Judges. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands and let all the other people go, each man to his own home. The question many have asked and attempted to answer is why these particular 300 men? The lappers versus the kneelers. And I have heard entire sermons, perhaps you have too, on the goodness of the lappers. The reason why the lappers were chosen. Points like this. Clearly they were fearless men. The lappers were fearless men because, hey, they were still part of that 10,000 who hadn't returned home in fear. And God chose these 300, so they must, of the 10,000 that were left, they must have been the most fearless men. And God likes fearlessness, and so you want to be like a lapper. And some have said, no, no, possibly they were just humble men. For to be called a dog or to be compared to a dog in this day and age was a bad thing. And dogs were not cute and cuddly household pets. They were disgusting, and for an Israelite to be called a Jewish dog was the highest offense. And the Lord is saying, hey, tell the guys who look like dogs I'm going to pick them. I want the dogs on my team. And so some have said, well, that's a great sign, though. These guys were humble men, and we need to be humble. It's a good point. We do need to be humble. But I think we're trying to draw something out that may not be there. Maybe they were just watchful men. These were the steely-eyed missile men of their day. Okay, they're the ones, they're, they're lapping out of their hands and they're looking and they're keeping an eye open to the enemy and they're ready to fight and they're sharp and they're good to go. And I'm sure we can compare notes on some of the brilliant things we've heard in sermons before, but sometimes me thinks we pastors are trying a bit too hard to pull out something that really isn't there. It's entirely likely, and Josephus was one of the ones who put forth this thought, he believed that these men were the least obvious choice. These 300 were not the best of the 10,000 left. They were the worst of the 10,000 left. They were probably too fat to lay down on their bellies and drink like the other men. Or maybe they were arthritic in their knees so they had to carefully bend and just kind of scoop that water up and bring it up to them because they couldn't get down to it. 
Maybe they were just too old, too worn out. These are the over 40 crowd who haven't worked out in a while and they're kneeling down just to get what water they can while the young spry guys are laying out, sipping right out of the stream. What's interesting to me is either way, whether these are the best of the best or the worst of the worst, either way, the point is not the men, the point is the Lord. The point is, God said, I will choose for you. Bring all the people down to the stream and I will choose those whom I want to use. And in God's choice, ultimately, only one person could be praised for this battle and it's the Lord. Whether these are the best 300 or the worst, you're still talking with the best 450 to 1. And with the worst, good luck, fellas. But we're looking at something here. It's an encouraging truth. God chooses those whom He uses. God chooses who He uses. And I'm going to share this just because I can and Jeff's going home tonight so he doesn't have to, you know, I don't have to deal with him. But we were just talking about this today. And the fact is, and we, it's interesting because our lives parallel in many ways. Um, our wives are very similar. And our, our ministries, you know, we're both kind of at, at an interesting place in, in planting churches, both two to three years along and, and starting churches, him in Arizona and, and us up here. And um, it's interesting because he shared a, a thought that I have thought so many times, and, and it's, it's that, am I, am I the right guy for this? Am I the right person? I mean, I've heard this from people on staff here, and, and Jeff, you're talking about staff people there, just saying, boy, sometimes I'm just not sure if, I, if I'm the right person for this, if I'm qualified for this, if I've got the experience for this. And there's a wonderful truth here. God chooses who He uses. If He has called you, whether you're equipped or qualified by your own standard is beside the point. The point is the calling of the Lord. It wasn't Gideon's choice. It wasn't the 300 men's choice. As they're watching, you know, they're, what is it, 9,700 men are leaving. And they're standing there going, what? I'm, I'm not going home? I'm not? Frank, give me a little more water there, will you, buddy? You know, These guys had, had to be wondering, why did they get picked? It doesn't matter why. The Lord chose them. He will use them. And the same is true in our lives, gang. 1 Corinthians 1.26, a, a wonderful verse. And I know this is one of those that I've read many times. I'm going to read it many more times until we have it memorized. For consider your calling, brethren, that you were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Think about when you came to the Lord. Boneheads? I mean, I'm not saying this to you, but Paul pretty much could be saying that. You didn't have much going on when you came to the Lord. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So if you feel unqualified for the place you are in your life, serving the Lord, however that may be, praise the Lord. If you're unqualified, it just brings more glory to Him. Because every good thing that comes out of you in your ministry, in your life, it shines, it reflects on the Lord and not on you because everybody looks at you and says, it couldn't possibly be Him. It couldn't possibly be her. It's got to be the Lord. So man, I, I enjoy my foolishness. 
And I take delight in my stupidity and my, my shame because, man, if God does any good thing through me, it just proves that He is the Lord and the glory goes to Him. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Now, I've been asked the question, well, wait a minute, Rick. He chose us and that's all good and well, but how do I know I've been chosen? How do I really know? And I have a rule of thumb for you. If you choose Him, you were chosen by Him. Okay? How do I know if I've been chosen? If you choose Him, you were chosen by Him. It's that simple. But but I want to be sure. Did you choose the Lord? Well, yes, I did. Well, then He chose you. He knew you were going to make that choice. He wants all people to choose Him. And He knows beforehand who's going to make the choice. So if you have chosen Him, or if you choose Him even here tonight... Guess what? You were chosen. And that's how you know. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's the blanket statement. If you are in the world, guess what? God so loves you that He died for you. You were chosen by Him. And Peter says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So right there, it shuts down the comment that some would make that some are chosen and others are cast out by God. No. The reality is, God has made the choice. He made the choice at Calvary. We are all chosen. The question is, will you now choose Him? And if you have chosen Him, you are chosen by Him. And if you're chosen by Him, guess what? He'll use you. He will use you. God chooses who He uses. Verse 8 going on. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Great story. Now the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise. Go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So Gideon went down with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels, remember they were the camel warfare guys, they were without number. As numerous as the sand on the seashore and that many camels is a lot of spit. (laughs) When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. This is so cool. Gideon and Pure, they come sneaking up on this tent and they listen in and there are two Midianites talking. And one says to the other, he says, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Who's trembling now? The Midianites are trembling. This is awesome. God gives this opportunity for Gideon to hear what the other side is truly thinking. But why in this dream, why is it barley bread? Well, it's because Gideon barley had an army. And the deep theological answer there. On a serious note, there is an answer to this, I believe. Barley bread was the bread of the poor and the impoverished. 
This was the bread that you ate if you couldn't afford any other kind of bread. Barley was easy to come by, easy to make the bread from, and that was for the poor people. It was pauper's bread. And so here comes this picture. It's a great picture. A poor, powerless people rolling down into the camp of Midian and flipping the camp of the soldiers upside down. They barley had a chance. They could barley do it. They were barley bread. They were weak. They were poor. They were impoverished. And they were perfect for God to be glorified. And so these, these two guys are sitting here talking about it. And Gideon's men are at the camp. They're in Herod, the spring of trembling. And now the men of Gideon, or, or Midian, they are trembling. And it tells us something important to note. Things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. A couple things to note about this. This is the unknown reality of the Midianite camp. Until Gideon went down, he had no idea this is what people thought. Until he and his servant Pura went there that night and listened in, prior to that, Gideon is still, man, he's still shaking in his boots. There is a reason I believe the Lord sent him down, because he needed some more confirmation. He'd already flipped over the fleece two times. He'd already seen the offering he brought back in chapter 6 on the rock burst into flames as the Lord accepted his offering. He's already had three great signs that God is with him, but God looks into the heart of Gideon and goes, man, this guy's still a little shaky. So I'm going to send him down and give him some insight. Here's something, Gideon, you have no idea is really going on. Down there in Midian, they are scared to death. They are afraid of you. They, the Midianites, the Baal worshippers, have heard of Jerubbaal, the contender of Baal. They have heard of now the sword of Gideon, this guy who is an amazing warrior. And they are afraid... And the Lord shows this to a fearful Gideon, I believe, to encourage him. But here's the second thing to note. Not only is this the unknown reality of the Midianite camp gang, Christians, this is the unseen reality of the demonic realm. Please don't miss this. This is a picture for us of exactly what goes on in the demonic realm. The demons are trembling with fear at the name of Jesus Christ. And I say this to you and I need to say it again and again. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, there is fear in the camp of Satan. In the camp of Satan. And Midian is a picture of that. There is fear in the camp of Satan. You speak the name of Jesus Christ and the demonic realm shudders at the name of Jesus. They tremble. They are in Herod. They are at the spring of trembling. And sometimes we as Christians, man, we get into the spiritual things and we think about the demonic realm and we get scared and we think, man, we really gotta, we've got to pray against the demonic because, man, they're attacking us. I'm under spiritual attack right now. You know what? If you're under spiritual attack, you have two words to speak to be saved from it. Jesus Christ. And boom, the spiritual attackers are trembling. Amen. Amen. And I just, I, I don't buy into this this idea of as Christians that we can be just ongoing oppressed no I believe Satan attacks and I believe the demons come after us and I believe they shoot fiery arrows and I believe they do everything they can to undermine what we're doing I believe that but I also believe in the name of Jesus Christ we have absolutely nothing to be afraid of we now have looked into the camp of the enemy and they are trembling they are afraid you and I have, as Christians have nothing to fear. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who is against us? It is as simple as that. If God is on our side, or better yet, if we are on God's side, we have nothing to fear. Verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. 
He returned to the camp of Israel. I love that he worships first. <laughs> right there on the backside of his tent after listening in. You know, I think I would have gotten out of there. He is now encouraged. And so right there on the other side of the tent of these two Midianites talking, he's sitting back there going, Amazing grace. How sweet is that? You know? He's just worshiping away. And then he heads back up. Then he goes back up to the camp. And he says to the people, to the guys, those 300 ragtag men, he says, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. We are barley bread. And he's excited. Now, you know, I can imagine the other guys going, We're barley bread. Okay, we were dogs and now we're barley bread. This is not a good track record for us. You know? We're the poor dogs. Great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so watch this now. Watch this battle plan because it's brilliant and it's intriguing. Verse 16. Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all the men with torches inside the pitchers. Okay? Here's their armament. These are their weapons of warfare. Trumpets, pitchers, and torches inside the pitchers. What in the world is Gideon doing here? We'll read on. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. This is the middle of the night, gang. And when they had just posted the watch... They blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands, which means the torches that were in their pitchers suddenly lit up. As there's this smashing sound, this trumpet blow, and all of a sudden there's this light. And when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held their torches in their left hands and their trumpets in their right hands for blowing, which means they didn't have any hands for swords or shields. uh, Torch and trumpet, that's all they had. And they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And he stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran crying out as they fled. 135,000 Midianites are now going, Get out of my way. Run, run, save yourselves. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of the one against the other, even throughout the whole army. So now they're killing each other. The Midianites. Because remember, Israel doesn't have any swords. They got the, the trumpet and they got the torch. Well, now the Midianites, in their panic, in their fear, and in their crying out, are stabbing each other and killing each other with their own swords. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Zerara, as far as the edge of abel by Tabith. You know exactly where that is, I'm sure. Verse 23, The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and, Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Three curious, strange implements of Gideon's battle strategy here. Trumpets, pitchers, torches. The trumpets were actually, the literal rendering in the Hebrew there is shofar. This is the shofar, the ram's horn that is blown. What's interesting is that the trumpets, the shofars, were not the typical instrument used for warfare. They used them once before. Does anyone remember where they used the shofar in warfare once before? At Jericho. Excellent. They used them at Jericho. But they're not supposed to. They they had two silver trumpets that were told that they made. Back in Numbers chapter 10 verse 2, two silver trumpets were used for warfare. Now when you hear the blowing of the silver trumpets, it's a call to war. When you hear the blowing of the shofar, gang, listen, the blowing of the shofar is a call to worship. 
It's a call to the gathering there at the tabernacle, later at the temple when the shofar was blown. A call. And yet, as they go into war here, Gideon says, blow the shofar like we do. Grab your ram's horn and let it rip. If you've ever heard a shofar blown, it's pretty awesome. Blown right. I think I've shared it here before. When I've tried to blow a shofar, it's a little scary. It kind of sounds like... That's about it. But blown right, it is a stunning, loud sound. So they blew the shofar, the call to the Lord, the call to worship. The second thing they had there was those clay pitchers. So they had a container. They had a call, they had a container. The clay pitchers are pots. And they had a conveyor, the torches. The torches that would convey fire and, and light. So what do these indicate to us? Again, again the call... The shofars, this call to worship. I, I love this picture of the story. Back in June of 1967, up on top of the Temple Mount, when Jerusalem finally retook, or, or the, the Israelites, Israelis finally took the Temple Mount again. First time, literally, since all the way back in AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. This is the first time, 1967, when Israel marched in and they retook Eastern Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And there are pictures, and you can go online and download and look at some of these pictures, it's amazing, of Israeli soldiers weeping on the Temple Mount at the return, at the opportunity to be in this place that was held so long by the Muslims and and others before them, to be up there. And Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, in June of 1967, pulled out a shofar on the Temple Mount that day and blew it. And the Israeli soldiers knew exactly what he was doing. It was a call to worship. It was a reminder of, the, of that great worship call to the temple. When they would hear the call thousands of years before, to be precise, over 1,800 years before, that call would blow and, and the Jewish people would go and they'd rise up and they'd go to the festivals and the feasts that would be held there at the temple when they heard that blowing of the shofar. It was an awesome, awesome sound. By the way, Israel just celebrated the 40th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. And the European Union boycotted it, which is interesting to me. So there was a call. There was a container. These clay pitchers, these clay pots, containers that are easily broken. And Paul says something to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are breakable, gang. The clay pictures that they're holding these torches in, it's a great picture of you and of me. We're breakable people, but inside of us, there is a power. If you live, if you walk, if you are in Jesus Christ, there is a power inside your breakableness that needs to be unleashed. And how do you unleash that power? By breaking the pot. By breaking the clay pitcher, the jar of clay. And that conveyor, the third thing they had, the torches conveying fire and light. And what better picture for us in the scriptures than the Holy Spirit? The fire, the light of God. Within the clay pictures. And here they, the army of Gideon, these 300 ragtag men, they break the pictures and out come the light. And in the same way, gang, in our lives, when we are broken before the Lord, the light of the Spirit can then come out and God alone will be glorified, not you, not me. Putting it all together in this picture of this battle of Gideon, a real battle, a historical battle that happened. There's a call to worship that rattles the enemy, but it puts the focus on God's glory. 
The clay pots are broken, conveying that bright but hidden firelight that shined out and declared victory for Israel as the Midianites ran screaming in fear. Wow, what a great picture. And Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify you and say what a great person you are and how awesome you are and how impressed they all are with you. Sorry, that was a mis- misread there. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Rick, you read that verse almost every week. I, I know. Memorized it yet? Let me read it one more time. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16. That is a verse to put to memory and to hang on to. That everything you do is for the purpose of bringing glory to God the Father. And listen gang, it's when you and me, it's when we are broken that Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.8, he says, Man, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed we're perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed Paul says we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be seen in our body the life of Jesus Christ the spirit of Jesus may be seen clearly in our life so man crush me Lord break this pot if you have to smash the jar of clay if that's what it takes to let the spirit out so that you can do your work through me and in me in this world. Now quickly, reading on verse 24. Gideon then sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. And so all the men of Ephraim were summoned as they took the waters as far as Bethbara and, and the Jordan. And they captured, that is the men of Ephraim, they captured the two leaders of Midian, some translations say princes, the two princes of Midian, that is Oreb and Zeeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeeb at the winepress of Zeeb, while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Now watch this. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you've done to us, not calling us when you went out to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. Gideon of Manasseh and the Abiezrites and the Ephraimites now called down to fight and now they're mad at Gideon they're like why didn't you call us into the battle why'd you go to this all yourself why you, all the glory is going to go to you is what they're implying here verse 2 he said to them what have I done now in comparison to you I love Gideon here he really takes the low ground the humble ground what have I done in comparison with you is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer he says even just picking the extra grapes off in, in Ephraim now you guys are much greater than, than I am than we are he says look God has given the leaders of Midian Oreb and Zaib into your hands and what was I able to do in comparison with you we just broke some pots and blew some horns. You guys took out their princes. And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. It's interesting to me because Gideon shows great tact and humility here while the critics of Ephraim contend with him. And I just need to say this to you and bear with me a moment. I tire of this kind of thing in the church. I get so tired of those who sit back and criticize or complain against the great things God is doing in other people or in other churches. 
just because they're not one of us. Just because they don't happen to meet in this barn. And please hear me because I'm not getting down on any of you. But I get tired of church after church pointing the finger at another church over there and going, what are they doing over there? They're growing. They must be doing something wrong. There must be some heresy happening if they're getting people and we're losing people. What are they doing? Well, I don't like that program that they're running over there. Boy, they don't have it down like we have it down over here. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 38, we see this exact thing happening as John, the apostle, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Way to go, John. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. There is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because your name as of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Can I just make a suggestion to you tonight that when you see another believer or even another Jesus teaching church group doing great things in the name of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Say hallelujah, the kingdom is growing right on. Call out the name of the other church fellowship and say, Bless them, Lord. Because they're teaching Jesus that people are being saved. And it doesn't matter if it's here, there, or anywhere. As long as it's growing the kingdom, praise the Lord. Ephraim misses that point. Well, you got to go out there and fight the battle. (laughs) You're routing the men of Midian. And and Gideon, in his grace and and humility here, just says, You know, I, I mean, we just tooted our horns. You know, you guys, you took out those, those princes. You did great. You did much better than what, what are we? Look at what you're doing. And he refocuses them, and they're, they're cool. But gang, as you praise the Lord for what the Lord is doing in other places, then return your focus to the Lord and follow what He is doing in your life. Whether it's in this place, in your home, in your work. Praise the Lord for what He's doing elsewhere and focus on what He's doing through you. Because frankly, I simply don't have time for petty jealousies between churches. We are part of a kingdom. And we're going to share eternity with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are all over this valley floor and who may not be doing it exactly the same way we are. Jeff and I figured that out. He's doing things at his church that are different than what I'm doing here. And I'm doing the best I can in the short amount of time that we have together to set him straight. Matthew 28, verse 19. And this is what we are all about. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our call. That's our focus. Not wondering what the other guy is doing. Now Gideon tactfully and humbly honors Ephraim and they settle down but there's still a routing going on. Verse 4, Gideon then the three, and the 300 men who were with him then came to the Jordan and crossed over weary yet pursuing. Remember these guys are probably the, I don't know, the, the heavier guys in, in their latter years and they're having a hard time here. He said to the men of Sukkot please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me for they are weary and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian. I like this about Gideon. He, he deals with Ephraim by going look you took out their two princes and then he goes off to take out the kings he is fighting the big guys in verse 6 the leaders of Sukkot said are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give bread to your army they're saying we're going to wait and see who wins this war and then we'll give support 
Because if we support you now and they win, then we're in trouble. So we're not, sorry, we're not engaging. Good luck. If you do well, come back and maybe we'll talk bread then. And so Gideon says, all right, verse 7, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And you will get the point. Thrash with the thorns. Sorry, there's a little sticky there. But verse 8, then he went up from there to Penuel, which is, by the way, also called Peniel. Do you remember Peniel? This is the place where Jacob uh, struggled and wrestled with God. Peniel. Penuel, same place, and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Sukkot had answered. And so he spoke also to the men of Penuel. He said, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Apparently there was a tower there at Penuel, but also, gang, the tower that he would tear down was the tower of their pride. I'm going to wipe you guys out because you are not willing faithfully to stand with me and with the Lord. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men. All who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Which is still amazing. Here goes Gideon. They have now seen the death of 120,000. There is still 15,000 guys, and his little band of 300 are chasing them. They're going after 15,000 men who are running. Oh, 300 guys are chasing us down. There's 15,000 of them. But the Lord is on their side. And the Lord is being glorified and they are scared to death. It's a gutsy move. 300 guys huffing and puffing but pursuing these 15,000 that were still left of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkot are just more naysayers. Why should we supply and feed your group? Until you've got a foothold, you get nothing from us. Well, verse 11 going on. So Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Awesome. Gideon understands something incredibly important to a life of faith. And by the way, this is why he reacts to these, the men of Sukkot and the men of Penuel the way he does. He understands that it's one thing to obtain a victory. It is another thing to maintain a victory. They had a victory once those guys began to flee. To flee. Once they began to run, here's Gideon and his 300, they've blown the horns, these guys are taking off. It's like, we won. <laughs> Game over. They're fleeing. They're killing each other with their own swords. There's only 15,000 left and a couple of kings. Let them go. We won. We have obtained a victory. Great. But if they stopped there, they would not have maintained the victory. In our spiritual lives, gang, as believers, we may obtain a victory in certain areas of our life, but the question is, are you maintaining the victory? Paul would say it this way. Are you working out your salvation in fear and trembling? Are you continuing to grow up in your salvation? Or have you already obtained the victory so you figure you're fine and there's nothing else that needs to be done here? We can obtain the victory, but it's another thing to maintain it. It's long-term faithfulness and commitment to the battle that wins the war. And some in the halls of Congress should study this story. It's commitment. It's not cutting and running. And I'm speaking spiritually, but you can apply it other places, I'm sure. It's not giving up when it gets tough. It's maintaining 
the victory that God has given you. Paul put it this way to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.18. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Timothy was already a Christian already a believer had already obtained the victory of eternal life and Paul is saying Tim fight on keep fighting the battle is not over yet keep fighting keep the faith he says 1 Timothy 1.18 with a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith and I'll tell you how you end up shipwrecked in your faith stop fighting you got the victory kick back Put your feet up, relax, and you will experience shipwreck in your faith. But a dynamic faith, a growing faith, is one that maintains victory, continues to chase after the enemy. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is the church doing so close to the gates of hell? I'll tell you what, pursuing the enemy, fighting the fight. Not willing to give up until our final breath. Not willing to give up a lost soul. But continuing to speak to those around us the name of Jesus. Continuing to say, come know the Lord. Come and be saved. Continuing to seek to rescue those who are entrapped by the enemy. Paul also said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not ten years from the appearing. Not when you feel comfortable in your faith and can relax until the appearing. He says, you fight on until you hear Jesus say, come on home. When Jesus shouts those three precious words, come up here, then the fight's over. Then you relax. Then we kick back and we enjoy the place the Father has prepared for us for the last 2,000 years. And it will be glorious. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has Jesus yet returned? Kind of an easy one to answer. If Jesus has not yet returned, then fight on. Maintain the victory. Don't quit. Verse 13. So Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris. And he captured a youth from Sukkot and questioned him. And the youth wrote down for him the princes of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? And Gideon took the elders of the city. Well, church discipline. He took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars and he disciplined the men of Sukkot with them. I like that. It's a very nice way to say he thrashed them. He took them out behind the woodshed and he taught them a lesson. lesson. He disciplined them. Literally, he made the men to know, to understand where the victory lies. He tore down, verse 17, the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. You might say, man, Gideon's a little harsh here, isn't he? Isn't this a little bit rough? Hey, Hebrews 12:11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
And discipline always seems harsh when it's being doled out, but it's always purposeful in the hands of the Lord. The leaders of Sukkot and Punuar were waiting to see who won the war before they would sign up. There are those today, sad to say, it's heartbreaking to say there are those today who are waiting to see who's going to win the war. There are those who say, well, you talk about the church being called up and you talk about this tribulation stuff happening and you know Jesus coming back and all that. You know, I'm not sure if I believe it, but when I see it, I'll believe it. When I see who wins the war, then I'll side up. Guess what? Once the war is won, there is no taking sides. If you don't choose the Lord now, you have chosen not to choose the Lord later. And that is the reality of Scripture, gang. It is now or not at all. And furthermore, for leaders, why would he take out these leaders and discipline them? Because you cannot lead if you're not following in the case of the Lord. Unless you're trusting the Lord, you cannot lead others and ask them to follow. Verse 18 tells us then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, and hang with me just a couple more minutes here, gang, which I know translates into more than that, but we'll go quick. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, oh, now these are these two kings, oh, well they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. Good looking Gideon. I mean, you're, you're a good looking, you're a kingly kind of a guy. And, the, and these guys that we killed at, at Tabor, they, they look kind of like you. Now apparently, and this is not talking about the battle that just happened, but apparently these two kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, had previously killed some men in the region of Tabor, and so they attempt some flattery with Gideon. How does Gideon know about us killing those guys? Well, that's okay. Hey, they were kingly looking guys. In fact, they remind us a little bit of you. And verse 19, we learn something about Gideon. He says, they were my brothers. Not just brothers in Israel, gang. They were the sons of my mother. Now we get a little bit more. Why is it that Gideon pursued Ziba and Zalmunna so fiercely? Because these two kings and the Midianites had killed his family in a previous situation. And now these two kings are looking at Gideon and saying, Oops, maybe that wasn't such a good move after all. And so he says, As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So Gideon said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them! But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And so now Ziba and Zalmunna, bad deal here, they, they get a little cocky and they decide to taunt and they go, Oh, rise up for yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. In other words, as the man, so is his offspring. Your wimpy little oldest son can't take us out, so apparently you can't either. And they're taunting him. They try flattery, now they're trying taunting, and neither one are a good idea when you're talking to an angry Gideon. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took, watch this, the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. Interesting. Crescent ornaments. When you think of the sign of the crescent, and the Middle East. What is that a picture of? It's Islam. That is the symbol of Islam. It's the sign of Islam. And I need to say this. Islam did not just pop up 600 years after Christ. Though historically we know that's when Muhammad showed up. The roots of Islam go back thousands of years to the paganism of peoples like the Midianites. This crescent moon symbol was a symbol at that time of Baal. It was passed down through generations to become, for Muhammad, his family god, little g, his family deity. 
Allah, the moon god, sign of the crescent moon. And Muhammad came along, and many of you know this, he said, no, we're going to make Allah, the little mini-god of my personal tribe, is actually not just the moon god, he's, he's the big god, he's the big guy, he's the one. Allah, he's the one we're going to follow. And the sign of the crescent that Islam claims for their symbol today, we see it right here in scripture, it roots all the way back to earlier paganism. Islam is a pagan religion and some would say well Rick you're just so judgmental with with Islam hey my hope my prayer is that every Muslim alive today would find Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior but the religion itself the religion itself is pagan and I've said this before anything that detracts or takes away from Jesus Christ I personally have no use for the sign of the crescent fascinating well as we come to the end of the story we return to the original reason for God's whittling down the army of Gideon it was for his glory and the question is does Israel get the picture verse 22 the men of Israel said to Gideon rule over us both you and your son also your son's son for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian but Gideon said to them I will not rule over you nor shall my my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. I love this about Gideon. He gets it. He recognizes who the king is. It's not Gideon. It's not about him. He knows where the glory belongs. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call, Paul writing, I call God as a witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Now listen to this verse. It's important. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. And anyone in ministry, anyone in any kind of Christian leadership, that's why we're here. We are workers together with you for your joy. We are not lords over you. As pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship... I am not the Lord. I'm not the boss. I'm not the one in charge of you. I'm a helper who walks alongside you for your joy and I would invite you and ask you to walk alongside me for my joy as well. And this is what Paul is saying and this is what Gideon understands. No, don't ask me to be king and my sons won't be king. The Lord is your king. The Lord is our king. We worship Him together, each of us. There are those who would seek out to be your spiritual kings or rulers or leaders, but be careful of that because there is only one ruler, only one king, and that's Jesus. And I've learned something here, and I believe I've shared this before, but one of the hardest things for me as a pastor is the reality that I can't possibly spend as much time with each individual church at the bridge that I would really like to. I can't spend the social time. I can't spend the prayer time. I can't spend the compassionate time or the the counseling time. And I have met so many great people over the last three years who have come to the bridge and maybe they've been to the bridge for six months and I just meet them for the first time. And after spending five minutes talking to them, I go, man, I would love to hang with this person. And then reality sets in. I don't have time. How can I possibly hang with everybody? But here's the point. It's not about Pastor Rick and getting in a relationship with him. It's not about Pastor Les and getting to spend time with him. And it's not about any of our shepherds. It's not about any of the worship team or any leaders or any small group. It's not about getting that relational time with with a person. It is only and always about Jesus Christ. 
And the relationship we are all called to seek is a relationship with Jesus, not with a pastor, not with a leader, not with a church overseer, but with Jesus. And so I would ask you, if you're closer to Jesus now than you were six months ago, and and it's because you've been here at the bridge, praise God, then you are in the right place. And if you still have no idea, you've never had lunch with me or spent time in my home or whatever, you know, first of all, call me, we'll set it up. But secondly, so what? So what? It's about Jesus. And it's His authority and His rule and your relationship with Him is what matters. People worry sometimes about the bridge losing the smaller relational kind of feeling we had when we started. You know? When you got 25 people meeting in a living room, it's, hot, it's easy to be tight and to know everyone and to hang with everyone. As the church grows, people say, man, I don't want to lose that smaller feel. Let me say this to you, gang. I don't know what God's going to do with the bridge. I don't know how it's going to grow. I don't know if we've topped out, if there's more coming, if there's less coming. I don't know what He's going to do. But whether it's 10 people in a church body or 10,000 people, the focus is Jesus Christ and never, never any of the leaders. It's Jesus. And if our hearts are looking to Him, if we're caught up into what He's doing, it shouldn't matter a whit whether or not we get to hang out with other people. It's about Jesus. And Gideon gets it right. The Lord shall rule over you. And I think, go Gideon. All right, Gideon. You got it, Gideon. And then we read the end of the story. Oh, Gideon. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, the Midianites and the Malachites. They were Ishmaelites. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' backs. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it would become a snare to Gideon and his household. Remember what an ephod is. Back in Exodus 28, you can read all about the ephod that the high priest wore. It was a vest of woven fabric. Gideon's thinking about this. And it's possible It's possible that Gideon's thinking, man, I'm going to make a golden ephod, a golden vest, to kind of remind the people, not of the political victory here, but of the spiritual. Kind of like the high priest wears the ephod. So I'm going to make a golden one so we can look at that and be reminded that this is a spiritual victory. It may have been a good idea at first. It may have been that Gideon was saying, now let's, let's keep the focus in the right place. But sometimes what seems to be a good idea to us is a very, very bad idea. For the Lord said in Isaiah 42, verse 8 again, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I will not share my praise, even with something you make by your hands. Even if that thing is intended to remind you of me, I will not share my glory with that. Though Gideon's heart may have been in the right place, the people made it an idol. And even Gideon and his whole household began to worship the golden ephod. After all of this, this tremendous move of God and the work in Gideon's life, he makes this ephod and falls to it as an idol and worships it in the place of the Lord. Guys, when we make a thing the object of our affection, like the ephod, or if we even make a place an object of affection, 
like the city of Oprah. That was where the ephod is. Man, make a Mecca to Oprah. Go to Oprah and, and you can see what Gideon did and you can worship the Lord there and you can check out the golden ephod and you can worship the Lord in the ephod there in that city, that great city. If we make a place our focus, then we are missing the point. And I have to say that, gang, because people say, man, I just love this barn. Now, I love it too, gang, but I hear this all the time. I love this barn. I shared on on Sunday that we made an offer on some land. And we're going to wait and see what the Lord does with that. But the first thing I'm asked by people when they hear I made an offer on the land is, if you build a building, you're not going to build a church, right? You're going to build another barn, right? Well, yes, but that's completely beside the point. The structure that we worship in is not the focus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We could be in a steel building. We could be in a great cathedral. We could be in a living room. We could be out on a grassy hill somewhere. It doesn't matter. What matters, gang, is the Lord Jesus Christ and our worship of Him. Watch out. Places, things, they are just a snare like it was for Gideon. Only the Lord matters. And he does not give his glory to anyone else. Well, we finish up. Verse 28 says, So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon, so they had peace. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Interesting, Abimelech. Abimelech means son of a king. I thought Gideon said, don't make me a king. But now he has the son Abimelech, who he names the son of a king. Gideon's caught up in this golden ephod in the snare, and he is playing the role of a king that he said he wouldn't play. So he has his son Abimelech. It says, Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of Abia's rites. And then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done in Israel. Let me say this final thing, because it's a tragic end to a wonderful story. Great story of faith. God calls this man Gideon. He calls 300 men around Gideon, all of them probably very unqualified, but God calls them, and he goes to battle. It's an awesome battle, a great fight. They rout the Midianites. They win. Gideon seemingly gives all the praise to God and you read through the story and go, yeah, now that's a judge I could, I could follow after. That's <laughs> what Israel did. This is a judge we can follow. Here's the thing. Gideon is a perfect picture of what we see happen in churches and in church movements so often. It often starts out with a man. In fact, the Lord typically will call a person. I don't see any examples in Scripture where he called a committee to start something. He will call a person. He will give vision to a person. And if that person is faithful and follows, then a ministry will spring up out of it. What begins with a man becomes a ministry, and it's exciting. And then next thing you know, there's a movement. Man to ministry to movement. Things are happening. They're snapping. God is at work. People are saying, wow, look at the move of the Lord here. Look at what he's doing. 
It all started because this guy was faithful and, and entered into this ministry and now it's a movement and then the tragic thing happens and it's exactly what happened with Gideon. It becomes a monument as he makes the ephod to consider what it is that we have done and how great we are and what we have accomplished. Look at the golden ephod here in my city of Oprah. The monument to what's happened. And the tragedy is that the monument becomes a mortuary. Man, ministry, movement, monument, mortuary. And if you look at the whole of church history, this is the cycle of judgment that we have seen happen in the church. What starts off so powerfully, when we get away from the glory of the Lord, it dies away. To the point that in Gideon's story, the people of Israel didn't even honor his household after he died. Once he died, they were done. And they were right back on the treadmill of judgment. One last thing here. It's interesting to me that during battle and challenge and difficulty and when it's hard, Gideon does great. His faith is strong. But when the battle's over and he retires, he makes the ephod, he amasses many wives and even sets up a little honey over there in Shechem, that's when Gideon falls. When he's relaxing. When he's kicking back. And the result is the next judge of Israel, a false judge, his son Abimelech, and we will talk about the self-imposed major loser of Israel next Wednesday night. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. And we worship you and we glorify you for what you did with the Israelites and with Gideon in this story that we've read. We honor you and we worship you for all that you have done across time and across history. The, the many victories, both great battles, Father, and individual lives. People even, even here at the bridge that we have seen saved. Lord, we praise you for that and we glorify you and we thank you that you have worked in spite, oftentimes, of us. And we are humbled that you would use us. And we ask that you will keep our eyes so focused on you that we will not pay attention to the things that we do, but only the things you're doing. And may we truly live lives that bring glory to you, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.